Fair play and fair value. It's what playing at William Hill is all about. William Hill. It's who you play with. Gamble responsibly. Rank squad and welcome to Ranks FC and first and foremost happy St. Patrick's Day my name is Jack Collins and this is your favourite football podcast joining me as ever the rank god Mr. Sam Tai. Hello mate. Hello mate and our transfer guru Mr. Dean Jones. Hello mate you good? I am good it's my national day of celebration I'm uh, having <laughs> a great time I'm just a little bit sad because it's the anniversary of the last time I was in a pub non-socially distanced um, which is a bit of a sad anniversary really but hopefully we'll be back in the pub soon I, i'm looking forward to celebrating um and and to seeing you both actually although i will say i saw sam this week and it yeah, was really you nice seen each other again haven't you yeah we were sneaky. doing sneaky well, well, it wasn't that me. sneaky it wasn't that sneaky we were doing no. the Europa league show um, yes. and it was lots of fun and we uh we had a socially distanced pint afterwards which was nice yeah that was a good not, picture you not a me. pint really it was it was a can but it'll do yeah you should post it anyway. You should post it so people can see that you uh, you got time to enjoy half a drink together. Yeah, it was uh, it was very pleasant, Sam. It was good to see you. We were going to have a second drink, but Jack needed the toilet, and we were in a park, so we had to leave. Yeah, <laughs> it was like one of those. It was getting cold and dark, and we were like, ah, we should have done yeah, this earlier in the day. Fun, yeah. <laughs> yeah, really, really looking forward to being back in a pub. And Sam, do you want to introduce our guest today? Because interview Susan continues. It does, yeah. Interview Susan does continue. Uh, we continue to talk to people inside the football bubble and give our listeners a flavour of what it's like to work in different areas inside the game. So we've spoken to a commentator in Derek Ray, an agent in Sonny Coleman, and now Hugo Schechter, who is head of the Player Care Group. He used to work for Indy 11, then Southampton and West Ham. Has certainly forged himself as a bit of a reputation as one of the greats in the game of Player Care, which is a relatively new i'm going to say 10 to 15 year old profession but really coming into prominence now some of you have actually suggested that you might be interested in that kind of area i know it's certainly an emerging job prospect for lots of people in the world of football so hugo is here to talk to us about the ins and outs the jobs the best bits the worst bits and everything in between i guess yeah and uh, it's a it's a wonderful interview and i'm really pleased about it we talked about lots of subjects and lots of things that maybe you you don't necessarily expect i was expecting it to be all about you know, looking after players and actually so much of it is logistics and, and actually making it all work smoothly and how important that is to a running a team. So it was, it was a really, really interesting interview. But before we get into it, uh, it's time for things we love. And Dave, do you want to start us off? Yeah, absolutely, Jack. The thing that I really love at the moment is the La Liga title race. <laughs> now, uh, Jack said um, that Atletico Madrid had this in the bag. And if you're on Patreon, then you will know he's done this with a few other teams as well. But um, Atletico was quite a bold one. He went pretty early on it. And I did warn him a couple of weeks ago that Barcelona are coming. And well, here they are. Now four points behind Atletico Madrid. They are in sight and Barca are in some serious form. A 17-game unbeaten run in La Liga. Um, they last lost to Cadiz back on December the 5th. Atletico, meanwhile, have dropped nine points in their last six games. 
Well, Jack, it's squeaky bum time for you, mate. I mean, look, Messi's absolutely firing again. They've got no Champions League football to take their focus away. They've still got to play Atleti. Uh, fourth game from the end of the season. It could be that that game's the one that sways it. It's only like May the 9th, I think it is. Um, that could be the one. There's still 11 games to play in the season, 33 points to play for. Um, and this league, look, is now the one to watch because it's all wrapped up in Serie A pretty much. It looks like Inter are going to walk away with it. Man City are walking Even away I haven't called that one in the bag. Jeez, now you're now you're the one getting ahead of yourself. Well, mate, I'll give you a clue. You should have gone towards Inter Milan a couple, <laughs> rather than going into Atleti because uh, Inter have now got a much nicer lead over Milan than, uh, than Atleti have got over Barca. Even Real Madrid, I think, are closer to Atleti than, um, than Milan are to Inter right now. Bundesliga looks settled. So La Liga's the place to be. Get your eyes on it for the rest of the season. Um, Barca's season of crisis could end in them winning the league. And um, it'll also be quite nice just to watch Jack cry. I'm still confident that Atleti get this <laughs> over the line. I still am. I think there's a, there's a big week for Barcelona. And we mentioned it. They play the Clasico and they will play the Copa del Rey final against Athletic Club within six days of each other. And that is a huge week. That is, that's where this is kind of won or lost for Barca. And I suppose, you know, it's also could be where this season hinges in, in many ways, because that trophy is the one I still think that they are most likely, you know, to be, to be looking at as, as their best chance of silverware. So yeah, there's a there's a lot going on, um, but it, it's it's going to be interesting. Let's put it that way. I I think that as title races go, I still think there's there's life in Serie A, and I still think that the the title race in Liga, as you say, is actually genuinely starting to really heat up. And you know, I was gutted when Lille dropped points at the weekend, only for PSG to go and lose. Yeah. Um, so so it's it's really lively over there as well, and 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 things are, are worth pointing out. But yeah, lots of lots of fun to be had still. Sam, over to you. Yeah. Just before I go into my point here, just like to to, to tell the listeners just how on edge Jack is about these predictions and how hard he's taking it because. After Lil dropped points on Sunday, Hang he on, I haven't me. called that one in the back yet. No, he said he's he's got a bet on Lil, right? Lil Lil dropped points on Sunday. She, she texts me, Lil lost the league. It's over. PSG in the bag. That's what he texts me. About four <laughs> hours later, PSG lost. <laughs> he's so on edge here. He's so living fragile. inside his own mind. It's unbelievable. Anyway, look. The under 21 euros beckons, boys. And I'm really, really excited. I love this competition. It's such a good way of taking in and learning probably close to about 100 names that will, will have a, a varying but defining impact on football over the next decade. You only have to look at the previous tournaments to see the likes of Bernardo Silva and Thiago Alcantara, who have really emerged as the kings of these stages. And look how look how good they've been. Look how, look how much they've achieved in the game. This is the breeding ground of some really special players. And... Because of the pandemic, they've had to split this tournament into two tight waves. And the first wave, which is the group stage, is going to happen in this international break. It's going to play out over seven days. So it starts on March 24, ends on March 31, which is my birthday, just so nice. you're clear. Is that why they did that? It is, yeah. Seven days, <laughs> four groups of four, three games each in seven days. You wow. do get the impression that uh, some of these teams are going to roll out completely different 11s yeah. from game or one to game everybody's two. going to be injured by day seven, one or the other. Or everyone's injured, depends. <laughs> Obviously, that's where some of the squad depth comes in. But the knockout section from May 31 to June 6 is going to be unbelievable. All four quarterfinals are happening on the same day on May 31. 
if that's not a festival of football, my name's not Dean Jones. I mean, Sam Tai. So it's, it's going to be so good. But Colin. before before we get to that, the March, the March group stage, look at some of these squads, boys. Look at some of these squads. There's a lot to take in here. The Portugal team, yeah, it barely feels any different to the last one. The incredible amount of intrinsic experience of playing together here. They've got lots of 20, 21-year-olds, not so many 19-year-olds. You've got Florentina Luis and Jensen Fernandez. They've been playing together in the Benfica Academy as a central midfield pairing for a long time. Uh, Trincao, Jota and Leao up front. I'm pretty sure that was the front three the last time this worth, tournament was worth played. Worth pointing out this is Jota 3, not Jota 2. Um, Jao Felipe, yeah. um, who plays for Valladolid on loan from Benfica. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, he's one of my favourites anyway. What a, a wonderful dribbler. And you've got the the, the Diogos at the back. Uh, Leche, Kirosh, and Costa. You can connect my pronunciations there, uh, Jack. But they're not all at Porto anymore, but they were all at Porto growing up. That centre-back, centre-back goalkeeper. All same academy, all same first name. That means something, guys. There's an intrinsic connection there. Go to Spain. There's no Pedri, which is... An extremely rare fast track for a Spanish talent. They usually leave their most talented players down in the under-21s for a long time, even if they're exceptional. And Thiago and Isco are clear examples of this. But Pedri is not in this team, which means he's off. He's in the Spanish team. And I know, I know, I know he plays for Barcelona. But this is a real departure from their usual style. Italy look a little bit light on quality, I'm going to be honest with you. Low-key, I'm loving the look of Croatia. I think that's a serious group. But we arrive at the final point here, which is the fact that France just... The France squad is a joke. Oh my God. I'm so scared of this team. It is terrifying. For an under-21 tournament, they have called up Elan Melier in goal. They've got centre-backs. The centre-back crop is Wes Fofana of Leicester, Konate from Leipzig, Jules Koundé, who we talked about on Monday as being worth like 60 million euros, and Badi Achille from Monaco. This centre-back quartet is better than England's senior (laughs) <laughs> this France squad, this France squad would get to the last eight in the actual Euros. Like that's how good they are. It's silly. Look at the talent here. Look, you said Melier there, who has been brilliant for Leeds. Alban Lafont is the backup goalkeeper. That man's been everywhere. He played for yeah. Fiorentina in Serie A for two years at 19 years old. The man is an absolute machine. And then the, go to the midfield. You go Camavinga. to the midfield. Awa, Kamavinga, Genduzi, Bubakar Samare, and Chiuameni. Like it's. It's borderline unfair. It is. And the strikers, they get to pick between Amin Gawiri, who's been a Liga star, or Odson Edouard, who is a very impressive player as well. On the wings, you've got oh, Jonathan Kone. All right, not good enough for you. How about Musa Diaby of Bayer Leverkusen? This is just absurd. It's not fair. It's absolutely not fair. And I talked to at the top of this point, which was about how some clubs, or sorry, some teams will be able to completely rotate the 11 or maybe the 10 outfielders. France will be able to do this and probably not skip a beat. They're so strong and they're so deep. It is just silly. Yeah, absolutely. And and as we mentioned there, Portugal, very strong on one side of the draw. France, potentially on the other. They both win these groups. Um, they're, they're on locked on course for a final, which would be very, very interesting. But it's really exciting, this. Um, I can't wait for it, Sam. I, uh... yeah, it's going to be awesome. 
Awesome. Absolutely can't wait. Um, I was going to talk about lots of things. I was going to talk about Yunus Musa, whose decision to start, well, sign, but declare for the USMNT, I think is a, is a wonderful thing for their young crop. I know that you two will be upset. Well, yeah, that doesn't belong in this from... section. This is things we love. This is it, a thing that we a, hate. This is something that I love. And I, he's declared oh. for this American crop, which I absolutely adore. <laughs> this young American crop that, that are going places. Dean is half American, so it's okay for, uh, for Dean to celebrate this one in equal I, measure. I'm but... not. I'm not quite hard. <laughs> Someone posted a question the other day saying, Dean, seeing as you've lived in America for a while, I, I just need to point out I haven't, okay? I haven't. <laughs> I've just got an American wife and, and I've been there, there a lot. <laughs> he's got dual citizen kids. He's basically American. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. got to keep out. I might be if this American USMNT team carries on building like this because I think he'll be much more proud of them. Uh, but I want to wake a, a short point, <laughs> which is that the thing I love is New Balance have just released signature boots for Rose Lavelle, and they I've are them, absolutely yeah. unbelievable. I they imagine are... you've got a pair, mate. I saw them. I thought that's got Jack at five aside written all over it. They're pure white. They're called. The name of them is the Sweet Chaos Tequila V3 Rose Lavelle Edition. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Get get me a pair of them on order. They are absolutely gorgeous, stunning, stunning, yeah. and also not many brands give women footballers signature things and this is really cool from new balance and also rose lavelle is unbelievable i mean uswnt obviously but also man city what a player and if anyone was going to get signature boots i'm going to get involved with it was probably rose lavelle so <laughs> yeah um the the back of them is like an r with a rose through it it's wicked wicked i'm like fully on board and so yeah, that's my thing i love this week um dean jones give us a melon of the week well, yes, early in the show, but here we go. It's time for Melon of the Week. This week's Melon of the Week is Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. <laughs> I cannot believe I'm back at Arsenal again. Honestly, like, this is officially the club of melons. It should. You'd, just be you'd have thought the week that they won the North London Derby, Arsenal North London wouldn't Derby. win Melon of the Week. And they're still Melons of the Week. It's unreal how many ways they can find to win this award. I mean, I'm just going to have to start calling it Arsenal of the Week and just not pick any Arsenal players. It's just people that deserve to end up at Arsenal. Anyway, look, Aubameyang, impossible to ignore. Should have been starting the North London derby. Instead, he rocks up late in his ridiculous Ferrari. Um, everybody else managed to get there on time, but he got stuck in traffic. Um, as a result, Arteta's very strict on this. He's dropped. Afterwards, make this even worse, he was apparently the first to leave the ground and... From those, according to a, a report I read in The Athletic, that people that were sitting inside the stadium and were watching the warm down, which Aubameyang wasn't carrying out with the rest of the subs, they could hear his Ferrari revving up and leave and driving off. Yeah, you could you could hear it in the post-match interview. So there was uh, with the broadcaster, Sky Sports, about one minute 52 or something into Jose Mourinho's post-match. You just heard this. Oh, and everybody was like, that's his car. Because all the locals, they know what it sounds like because they hear it a lot. And they were like, he's left. Yeah. I mean, this, is, this isn't good. I mean, apparently he has a bit of a reputation for his timekeeping. And Arteta sticks to his principles. And fair play to him because they still managed to win the North London derby without him. I don't think it's something that's probably going to affect you know, his time at Arsenal. I'm sure they won't hold it against him. But he does need to sort this out because that is... Being late for a North London derby at a time when there, to be honest, aren't that many cars on the road is pretty melonish. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a big, great. Big boom or buster, boom or bust moment for Mikel Arteta. That 
because yes. you know if they lose that game, you know what we're talking about. Yeah, but at uh, least right, it's right, 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 yeah, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Maybe that's why I did it. <laughs> well, Arteta got it right, Aubameyang got it wrong, and I think a well-deserved melon of the week for the Arsenal skipper there. And with that, I think it's probably about time we got onto this interview, boys. Um, so without further ado, here's a conversation with Hugo Schechter, player care expert. <laughs> Fair play and fair value. It's what playing at William Hill is all about. William Hill. It's who you play with. Gamble responsibly. Welcome back to Ranks FC. And we are delighted to have the latest interviewee in our interview season of March. Mr. Hugo Schechter, player care expert, formerly of Indy 11, Southampton and West Ham, now forging his own path as a head of the player care group. Hugo, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to, to join you guys and uh, yeah, have some fun today. I've been looking forward to this because, I mean, Hugo, I've been a journalist for pretty much 20 years now and you know being around training grounds and everything over that course of time I've seen how things have changed I've seen how the culture's changed and um, it's, it's certainly a part of the game and a part of being around those environments that's become much much more prominent I mean well 20 years ago it basically wasn't there I remember actually Mark Maunders probably at Fulham was the only body that existed wasn't he I mean that, that yeah, I think you had uh, Lorna at Villa, you had Mark at Fulham, you've got like, that Bill Ellaby at Everton. There were a couple who were kind of the old boys who've who've been there. Mark, I think, is the only one of that sort of generation still going, but he's brilliant. And like, it's changed even massively in the seven years, seven, eight years I've been doing it. So yeah, I, over the last 20, 25 years, it's, it's, it's really night and day. And I think it's a positive, but there's also so much more that can be done as well. So yeah, it's, it's exciting times. I mean, how did you even get into this? Could you just give us an idea of what led you to where you are today? Well, I actually didn't, never wanted to do player care. I don't think anyone grows up thinking, you know, what I'd really like to do is pay some parking tickets for some players. But uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, I, I I mean, if you want to go way back, I was coaching through school. Um, I got my coach badges at 17, coached at university in America and was kind of looking for a way to get into football um, and realised because I hadn't played professionally or even at any level, like I was never going to be a good coach. So I thought I'd, I'd sort of give it a go. The job at Indy 11 came up and it was you know, a startup team. It was, a, you know, in America, the teams just kind of pop up, you know, when they just get made. And then we had to create that infrastructure around it. So when I started, I was team operations coordinator. We had one manager, we had one player, we had no training ground, no kit, nothing. And so we kind of got to build that. And that was a really cool experience straight out. You needed to be able to do that and got promoted to team operations manager. Um, had interned a little bit in, in uni. I interned at the FA and interned at Southampton in the academy. And um Les Reed I, I kind of kept in touch with Les Reed at Southampton and he was like uh, when Ronald Koeman came in he wanted a team manager which is kind of the a European term more than a, a British term but um they said you can't have a team manager but you can have someone to help the players out and and Les I spoke to Les and I was sort of keeping in touch with him and he said would you want to do it and I actually said no I said uh, I said it doesn't really appeal to me actually I'd rather be in uh, support relations um which probably in hindsight was the, the wrong thing to say. But anyway, they said, well, give it a go. And if you really don't like it, we'll look to change your support relations. And yeah, eight years here, eight years later, I'm, I'm doing my own business, you know, as a consultant. So kind of fell into it a little bit, I guess. But Southampton kind of took the leap and they didn't want to go full advertising, you know, 
for, for anyone to come do it. They want someone that kind of knew a little bit and they knew, knew me from my internship. So kind of fell into it a little bit, but not anything I ever planned to do or wanted to do. But obviously right now it, it's been quite good for me. I wouldn't say fell into it. I say dragged kicking and screaming, Hugo. <laughs> Sounds more like it. Um, but let's let's lay it out in simple terms before delving into a bit more of the detail and some of the stories. What is the job? So maybe we'll uh, start with the West Ham and the Southampton roles in terms of what that job actually is and maybe move into the, into the venture now. Yeah, I mean, so player care is really everything that's not medical or football. That's the way I see it. So it can be everything from team operations. So... You know, how you get into away games, flying on the plane, um, you know, picking the hotel, team scheduling, team communication, you know, WhatsApp groups and uh, getting people there at the right time to, you know, the personal stuff. So it can be, you know, the relocations of players as they as they join the club. Um, it can be day to day issues that they need, well-being support, mental health support. Um, my department at West Ham, we oversaw fan mail, um, signed items for, for charities, for, for the sponsors, all that kind of stuff. So. There's so much going on that really it's easier almost to say what it's not than what it is. And I think every club, because it's grown so sort of out of nowhere, every club does it differently. So, you know, like West Ham, we looked after player appearances for, for the sponsors. Um, other clubs will have a whole department to do that or the player leaders won't be involved. Or the media team will do it. So, I mean, you, you guys know you've been around clubs, but every club runs so differently that what I did at West Ham and Southampton is probably different to what they do at Man City or even Sheffield United or even, you know, Charlton. So it's also different across clubs. And uh, yeah, now I'm, I've started up my own consultancy business. So um, the player care group, which I left West Ham in, in December and set that up. And the, my, the idea is to, to provide this, my expertise to clubs to help either start their departments or build them from scratch. And it's kind of a bit of a niche because, no one's really no one really changes clubs in player care like I'm, I'm one of the few who's worked for three clubs two premier league clubs so it's kind of niche in that regard but also like clubs want to do more but they just don't know what to do so working with them on that it's been really exciting so were you the first player care manager transfer in history um i think there was i, I think there was one that went from Westman city to stoke but i think in terms of head of department i'll, I'll take that one yeah I'll, I'll get my uh my certificate on the wall for that <laughs> It's interesting there, Hugo. You, you know, you mentioned that different. Obviously, it's going to be different at every club, and and, mm. and that kind of makes sense, I suppose, because it's how it fits into the logistics of of different operations. But how common is the role right now? So, you know, you said that a lot of people are setting up and whatever. But of the let's say twenty Premier League clubs, how many currently have a dedicated player care, either manager or department? So, eighteen have something. Two don't have anything, um, which is good for me because that's my business um but then within that's massively varied so you've got a lot of clubs who have like one man bands who like one person's responsible for everything and then you've got clubs at the top you know who have you know five six seven eight nine ten people whatever it is so there's a real disparity in the premier league and then in europe this doesn't really exist at all i mean you're talking about maybe you can count on one hand the amount of clubs who actually have someone dedicated doing player care so um that's been a bit of a shock for me to be fair that that massive clubs in playing in champions league don't have anything um again you know it's a, it's a good business opportunity but i think premier league has been at you know the forefront of this in, in football but it's amazing how many clubs still don't prioritize this or, or or take it really that seriously 
Is there something about that that comes from the American model, Hugo? I mean, obviously you were lucky enough to, to work out there and, and, and kind of in, in investigate that and appreciate it. Is it something that's kind of, we've seen, I think, a lot transfer over from the American sports into, into football and especially into the Premier League. But a lot of people would think of maybe statistical analysis and, and, and those kind of things as being the forefront of that. But is this something that seems to be not an American concept, looking after someone is, is, is quite, a, quite a basic worldwide concept, you'd imagine, but yeah. something that's more done in American sports has now starting to filter into the European game. It's interesting because like, I think MLS, it's behind the Premier League, but I think when you look at the NFL, their model is so different. You have agents need to have MBAs. They need to, you know, they're only about, you know, a handful of selected agents who can work with NFL players. In the football, anyone can be an agent. You know, as long as you, you get your, if you, you fill out the form online, you're an agent. So I think the, the way they do things in America is very different in terms of it's very much a closed shop that only certain people can get in, which probably means that the players are looked after, you know, in a different way because it's so well regulated, whereas here it's not. I think here it's, it's come out more of a need of um, clubs wanting to reduce their risk because if you're spending 50 million pounds on a player and you leave, you know, them settling into either the player themselves or an agent or, or someone else, you're, you're giving a lot of responsibility to someone who's not really vested in it or as vested as you are. So clubs are saying, well, why would we trust the agent on this? We want to bring it in house and we can then have processes and make sure this is done properly rather than, you know, relying on someone else who we can't control and we have no idea if it's been done, done well or not. And so I think that's kind of where it's come from is clubs saying like, like, enough's enough. We, we, we need to sort this out. But still, I think, you know, in terms of where it could be to where it is, I think, you know, it's still miles away. I'm quite surprised that you said there that it, a lot of clubs in Europe don't have this yet. Um, I almost thought that it would be the other way around, that we might be behind the trend on this. I mean, you've set your own company. I mean, is that something you would now go in in terms of an advisory role? Would you look at those clubs or would you look to put people into those roles? I mean, how would, how do you view an opportunity like that? Well, it's for me, it's massive because I'm the only player care consultant out there that, yeah. well, that I'm aware of anyway. So that's massive for me. But yeah, I mean, although Brexit rules have not helped me in terms of needing a work permit now, but that's, that's a sort of side issue. I think it's massive because clubs in Europe actually look at the Premier League as kind of the shining light on a lot of this stuff. A lot of the infrastructure around teams is far advanced in, in Premier League teams than, than other clubs. And so the other clubs, when speaking to them, they, they look at the Premier League to see what they're doing and actually are really interested in it. And I think, you know, the way that I would work with, with a club out there would be I'd go there for a couple of weeks go through what they're doing now, come up with a, you know, a custom solution that works for them, normally two, three, four people, and then help them recruit that person. You know, I, I've got no interest in moving to Munich to work there, you know, but, but actually to go spend some time there and then get some good people who have the necessary skills and having complementary skills, language skills. Um, but again, trying to help the club sort of do it because a lot of them just have no idea or, it's kind of a mix of people who pick up rock, pick up bits, you know, the kit man will help them find a car because his mate's a car dealer. Well, that's <laughs> great. And it's really good for the guy to get involved, but actually that cannot be the best way to look after a champions league level footballer. So <laughs> very, very Harchester United, isn't it? Very, very much, well, without all the deaths and, and <laughs> explosions, thankfully, but yes, it's, uh, it's very much like that. But football's like that. Football's a lot of who, you know, you know, you, you guys know this as well. It's not about what, you know, it's about who, you know, and, someone's mates always doing something for someone and it's for me I've tried to really clean that up and 
it, it, that's been an uphill struggle for sure. It's time to move into some questions from our patrons now. They've come up trumps again, man. They, they, honestly, they're, su- they're such a reliable lot. They've come up with some really great questions for you. So yeah. first one from Joel, going from an established team to starting your own company, what has been the biggest difference and the biggest difficulty? I think, you know, the, the football club environment, especially the training, is such a social environment. And now we're obviously in a lockdown. So I've gone from working with sort of 65 people every day in the training ground, being able to bounce ideas off people to sitting alone in, you know, in my flat, working on the laptop. I think that's something we've all experienced, you know, that's, mm. that's fair enough. I think, again, having my team, I had a department at West Ham to bounce stuff off. I'm, I'm by myself now, you know, I've got an intern, but it's that I think it's a bit a big thing. And I think also football is so like insular where when you're in the bubble, the, the football bubble, you can talk to anyone. Like I, I could call anyone at any club and they'd answer my call. And now I'm almost, I'm not regarded as an outsider, but like, cause you're out that bubble, they're like, mm, not sure. Like he can't really get me tickets or he can't really get me a sign. Oh, or, geez. And, and so I, I was, part of me has been surprised, but part of me knew that was coming that as soon as I left West Ham, it would be harder for me. Um, but actually I built up some really good relationships over the years where that hasn't happened to everyone, but I've been amazed, especially people from other sports where, you know, I, I had some people I'd speak to maybe like a formula one or the NFL or whatever. As soon as I've left West Ham, it's like, nah, not, not interested anymore. And I think that's been quite surprising for me, but I think that's again, football, probably industry in general is if they don't see anything in it for them, then they're not going to help you. Yeah, it's a funny old world, isn't it? <laughs> funny, yeah, funny old bad. bubble we have. Um, I won't this, this, so yeah, exactly. If I ever get back to the club, then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll keep them out of there. But no. Yeah, I was like, you've got Arya Stark's list going on on the <laughs> yeah, side exactly. of it. Um, <laughs> take it on to one from Zidane Shrestha. And he says, what do you greet a new player with when they first arrive in England? Fish and chips, a six pack of Guinness or an umbrella? All handy, all very useful. <laughs> yeah, all very useful. I don't think I would have a job if I offered them... <laughs> <laughs> no to be honest we obviously just meet them at the airport but actually like at West Ham we even went into the detail of looking at what's in the car when we greet a player because it was you know the, the initial th- you kind of have levels of what you can do so level one is get a tax all right mate get a taxi here's the number and we'll meet you at the hotel level two is we'll get a nice car Mercedes whatever uh, v-class we'll meet them at the airport pick them up you know and take them back but level three is kind of looking what are we going to have in that car so, you know, we would, we would bring colouring books for the kids, we'd bring snacks for the family, we'd bring English phone chargers, we'd bring, you know, hotspots so they can get on the Wi-Fi, and we'd have like a welcome pack, which is like 30 pages of information about the club. And so that is kind of, again, that you have the levels of things where they all get you from A to B, but one is a bit of a bad impression, first impression, and, and the third one is a really good first impression where they think, wow, not only is this club a big club, but actually they really thought about this here and they really thought about everything. So I need to step my own level up so they're not just popping, you know, coming over in, in a taxi or on the Heathrow Express. They're getting picked up with a driver in a suit, met by a club representative. They've got everything in their family. The kids are entertained. They can charge their phone and they can start reading about the club and, and the areas. And I think that's where clubs go. A lot of clubs would be at level one or level two. And I think you should be looking at level three as a minimum in the Premier League, but actually... What else can you do above and beyond that? So uh, that's kind of where I think player care goes from sorting a couple of parking tickets, which is like 0.1% of what I would do to looking at that high end level to try and raise it, you know, in in, in line with the rest of, of the I things. Think you I think it's really interesting because, you know, and especially the welcome pack about the, the history of the club and all that, because that's often something leveled, right? And at, at players in modern football, especially that, 
are they coming to the club and a lot of players are labeled as, as mercenaries or whatever that might be and they don't understand what it means to the fans and and there was a lot of this in Italy I remember when you know when ultra culture kind of took over and there was this they don't die for the shirt kind of thing and 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 I think you know especially a club like West Ham where the history is illustrious and there is so much of the club tied up with that that actually to be giving players that insight into it first off is kind of why then you can see players buy into the fans and the fans buy into players because it's like I understand the culture of the club and actually what this represents yeah I think you know there's definitely a balance to be had I think if you're asking a foreign player day one what year West Ham won the last one the FA Cup I think that's probably an unfair question yeah, to agreed. Ask. But I think having some knowledge of where a club like West Ham's come from sort of history is really important as well so you know we the welcome pack's not just on the history of the club it's on you know who works at the training ground and where to live and all that kind of stuff as well but it's it's really important, but, you know, a lot of people who work at football clubs or play football clubs are not fans of that club. I would say it's very much, especially around the team, it's a very much a very small number. Like, I can't think of many West Ham fans we had around the training ground. And I don't think that's a positive or a negative. I just think that's the way it is. So, yeah, you know, I care about the club and I did, in my mind, a very good job for the club. But, you know, I couldn't tell you, you know, every player that's come through the academy or, you know, the history of the club. Like, I know basic information but I'm not a historian and I'm not a fan and I think you have that that sort of difference between being a fan and being a professional I think it's quite an important distinction to make yeah totally um there's a question come from Sam Steen and he asks how you navigate a player that doesn't speak English though I mean I guess you know you someone gets in your car it's all very well having a welcome pack but if they can't read it what's the point well the welcome pack's translated into there you go there you go (laughs) that's why it's 30 pages yeah exactly um no i mean we so so in my department we had you know different people with different skills so one of the people in my department was a linguist um who, who spoke spanish and italian and like i started doing duolingo french having done gcc french 100 years ago so like we we make an effort but actually the the initial um you know, the initial signing can be done through a translator. Normally the agent will speak English and that player's language, but then it's quite quickly on the player to learn English because if the player can't doesn't learn English, they can't understand each other on the pitch. They can't understand each other in the dressing room. They can't understand the manager. They can't do interviews. They can't really live properly. So we've always made it a real priority, like day one, that players learn English. And we have, you know, the, the teachers will go to their flat, obviously not in a pandemic, you know, to the training ground, wherever they want to meet, you know, we'll do it for them, their families, whatever it is, you know, that's not, you know, it's really money, no object at that point. But it's really important that the the club culture is one of, you will learn English and you'll really settle in here. And I think that's sometimes where clubs go wrong, where that's not the expectation. So, you know, you guys as journalists know that how difficult it is to really get a good interviewer from a player when they don't speak English, or they use it as an excuse to not do the interview or, or kind of hide behind it, where, you know, this is your job. You should be learning English from day one. And, and we have really excellent teachers who, you know, we've had, especially with, with Manuel Pellegrini, we had a number of players who come in who didn't speak any English. And within three, four months, they were doing interviews, you know, in English without a problem. So, you know, it's really important. And I think the guys actually really like it as well because it allows them to kind of understand players. And that, the issue we have not is not really with English, but actually with, with accents. You know, it, at West Ham, we had Robert Snodgrass, who's from, from Scotland. We had Aaron Cresswell, who's from... Liverpool and you had Mark Noble who's got this sort of East End accent and listening to the three of them talk if you're not an English speaker and trying to jump into a conversation that's 
that's harder than learning English itself. <laughs> level of uh, languages at that point. I was going to say, if Andy Carroll was there at the same time, you had Geordie Scouse, Glaswegian, yeah. and East End. That's not a uh, that's not an easy uh, easy balance to strike. <laughs> oh, it's difficult even for me sometimes. You know, I don't. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, but you know, that's a, another challenge that footballers face, especially if you're joining a club that's probably outside of I don't say outside of London because that's not really fair, but you know, in an area where they have stronger accents, it can be a real challenge, not only to learn English, but to learn that dialect of English or that, that accent, you know, quite quickly. Yeah, I mean, you, you play a bigger role there as well, because the manager's kind of depending on you to get the players on that wavelength and help him understand what is being said by him. I mean, is there ever a, a situation, I imagine there is, where you would buddy up players with people from, even if it wasn't their own country, somebody that might be a bit more familiar to them, that help them just ease that transition? Yeah, I think in football clubs, you often see cliques around like languages. So you have like the Spanish lot, the French lot, British lot. And so naturally they kind of merge together, but actually it's not a clique as in like a negative clique. It's just like who they sit with at lunch and who yeah. they sit on the bus with because it's easy. And I would understand that as well. Um it really comes to the manager as well to enforce this sort of like the English accents because if we've said to the manager, look, you know, obviously football comes first and, and foot, you guys know again, it, it's when an interview is booked at one o'clock, if the manager has a meeting, it's not happening at one o'clock. It will happen when it happens. And that's, that's, you know, part of football. And we, we experience the same thing as well in, internally. But if the manager says, you know, yeah, I agree that this English lesson is a priority, we'll finish the lesson, the meeting, but he's got to go to his lesson and I'll enforce that. It's much easier as if he's like, oh, come on, I don't need him to order a lemonade in, you know, in a cafe. I need him to know how to mark Sergio Aguero yeah. and the game this weekend. Then it, it kind of undermines you a little bit, but most managers are, are pretty support. They're either apathetic or they're supportive. I, I've never had any manager who's like, undermined what I do and that would be a weird thing for them to do anyway but yeah most managers are pretty supportive of it. Is there an example there Hugo of uh, sort of buddying up or something like obviously one that springs to mind from from West Ham would be would be Suchek and Sofal and apologies if I've got the uh, pronunciations wrong on that one I've I've heard you have but I've heard so carry on I've heard Sofal pronounced about eight different times by commentators in the same game let alone but Mm. obviously both from Czech backgrounds probably a natural area there and there's a there's a a couple of questions later on as well uh, from from Andrew Detmer and from and from Harry as well talking about you know Fernandinho uh, playing a big role with the Brazilians at Man City and the link between Aspiliqueta and Morata at Chelsea which was spoken about by the players themselves. Yeah, I mean I mean Sufal and and Suchek are, were best mates back you know back in Prague so that that worked really well they were best friends anyway so that worked. Oh, nice. Um yeah, but I think yeah you you do get you know these these kind of links but actually it's also important that they don't just stay within those little groups and, and kind of go around. I mean, we we kind of make sure, you know, we kind of pull them through that initial process and we have like the six key things that we try and sort, you know, in the first couple of weeks, which is, uh, you know, this, this will test me because I haven't done it in a while, housing, bank account, car, um, visa, language lessons and schools for the kids. And once those six things are sorted, then the player becomes much more self-sufficient. So we would kind of be that player's go-to early on. But one of the things we provide the players is like a face sheet of everyone at the training ground. So they get it on their phone and it's part of the welcome pack as well. There's every single person who works at the training ground has a picture, a name, a title, and a nickname if, if appropriate. Because a lot of people in football don't go by the actual names. And so they have that. So if someone gives them a drink, they know, okay, that's Callum, the sports science intern. Who's that picking up the cutlery? That's little old Shirley, who's 86 years old, who's worked there for 30 years and is the sort of potwash kitchen assistant. 
So it makes them so that every single person they, they get to know, they get to familiarize themselves because you guys know when, when you move into a new work experience, a new work environment, you'll chat to someone over a cup of coffee and be like, I have no idea who that person was. But then you're like, it's a bit rude to ask them who they were because we've just chatted for 15 minutes and I pretended I knew who they were. <laughs> so again, it's little things like that where actually everyone knows who the player is because they've just signed for X million on, on, on TV. But do the players know who everyone is? And do they feel comfortable in going to them? You know, even to a point where we had little language flags, you know, over name badges and stuff like that, We, you know, on match days anyway, where a family would know that Hugo speak, I had like, I had half a French flag because I wasn't confident having a full French flag. But like, you know, in a pinch, I could help someone who's French, but there are also people who have French and Spanish flags or French and Italian, so that families could could identify who to speak to. And I think all those little touches, again, it, it kind of makes the players feel like I've got to raise my own level because the club is really looking at this. And so many clubs just wouldn't do this. And I think it's it's a massive missed opportunity. I mean, taking that onwards and, and talking about the training grounds and the complexes, I mean, this is also from Andrew. He said, how much do the food sort of cultural options? And again, it's so checking so far that spring to mind because of what happened over Christmas. But is that a stumbling block for many foreign players in terms of the way that, you know, you suddenly have this complete cultural shift in what's on offer? And and obviously, I think with the globalization of the game and all of this, and, and especially with nutrition and sports science, you're probably seeing a, a shift towards a kind of more global menu in, in, in that regard. But the clubs then look at care packages from like back home to, to make players feel welcome and, and get that kind of feel for exactly moving people in almost. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, we have a really good uh, culinary team both at Southampton and West Ham. And um, at Southampton, we actually had like um, player themed menus. So one day a week, a different player would bring in like two recipes that either his parents made or he had like from back home and our chefs would try and make it. And then it would be like a side option. So we, I remember Dusan brought in some some Serbian meals. I can't remember what they were, but I don't think they went down that well. <laughs> um, Is it like a master chef thing where you end up voting people out? <laughs> uh, it wasn't. It wasn't as structured that. It was just kind of like here's a little Serbian flag stuck in something, and you have to like taste it and see what you think. And I remember there were. I think he actually had like a cheesy. It, it was a bit like a chicken Kiev with ham and cheese in it. But yeah, so you know, with with, with Maya, he was doing Japanese food, and so. It was really nice, like just to learn a little bit about cultures. But in terms like that is a bit of fun. It's not really, you know, going to invoke memories of home because obviously they're not they're not used to cooking that food. But yeah, we, we'll try and put things on the menu if, if they really want something. But everything's so sort of finely done with nutritionists and sports science and stuff that you know, if someone player was like, I really want a pack of Guinness to do the earlier, you know, thing before a match, it would be like, no, you can't have that. But um, if it's you know, yeah, I really like green beans with a bit of mustard. Sure, you know, no problem. So, and then again, that players when they first set in, they can take home food, pre-cooked food from the training ground. So they can, you know, if they don't cook, again, it's we can provide a chef in their house. We can provide meal prep services. We can they can take food home from the training ground. Like the idea is that we try and you know make it as as least the least as a shock as possible when it when they're moving over. And so, you know, it's trying to see what else we can do rather than you know, oh well, we shouldn't be doing that because it's wrong or whatever. Mm. Hmm. Got a question here from Mohammed Reza, which I may link in here, but it's the what is the biggest or, or most common off the pitch reason for a player from a foreign country to not perform well on the pitch? Is there like a, a clear th- thread here that you can pick out? It's it's not more more often than not. I mean, from my point of view, I've I've I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but I've only really worked with players who've had good player care off the pitch because I've been providing it. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So it's it's easy for me to say, well, it's all footballing reasons. I think. 
you know, not knowing other clubs and not knowing how to do things. I think I've seen, you know, players that have got role and there have been, you know, more than a couple, um, especially earlier on. Like, it was often family pressure, like loneliness, like, you know, is issues where players don't settle in. But also it could be, you know, the physicality of the Premier League. And it, it's hard to really say unless a player says, I don't like this because of this. It's quite hard to know. Is it, you know, is it because they're playing played in a formation they're not used to? Is it the physicality? Is it the speed of the league? Is it they really miss their parents? They miss their brother and sister. They miss their girlfriend. They miss their kids. I, you know, it's it's hard to say. But mm. I, I'm hoping, especially like living in like a city like London, you know, it's a very multicultural city. If you can't find something in London that sort of helps you settle, then I think that we're doing a bad job. And I'm certainly if if you know, like a Dimitri Pyatt situation happened on the, my watch, I would be offering my resignation, you know, the next day, because for me, that's a massive failure of, of my department. Um, you know, if it's a player that hasn't settled into the formation, you know, okay, that's the manager's problem, not, not mine. So it, it's, it's, it's kind of a combination of everything, but you know, again, if you're, if you're living, if you're the player liaison for Hull City, are you going to be able to have that multicultural environment? You know, the communities in the city, the you know, the variety of restaurants and shopping and all that. I don't know, probably not. Even yeah. though it was the city of culture, you know, it's it's hard to say. You know, it's a much harder job at these smaller clubs and smaller cities. And you see players not wanting to, or not say not wanting to, but they have a harder job of selling the club. If you're say Swansea versus Fulham, you know, okay, Fulham in the Premier League, but say Fulham in, in, in the same league as Swansea you're probably looking for oh, Fulham looks really nice. South London by the river, you know, 15 minutes to London or Swansea city, which again, great club, but mm. in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I'm hopefully not going to get lots of Welsh abuse for that, but you know, <laughs> in terms of it, it's for, for a foreign player, they're looking at, right. It's going to be a four hour drive before I can fly home. You know, that's, that's, that's a big obstacle. For yeah, totally. I mean, also from speaking to player liaisons before I've, I know that, players are largely quite useless around their own houses because they've never had to do anything, have they? They've grown up in these bubbles where they've been in academies or they've lived in houses with other families and stuff. You know, they don't know how to change light bulbs. They don't know that such minor things that you just take for granted. I think, you know, when you're looking at people coming from abroad, if I was in, and I give this example, you know, working with Sadio Mane when he arrived from Salzburg at Southampton, He'd only really been in Europe for a year or two, and he came from a very tough background in Senegal. Now he's moving to a new country where he doesn't speak the language very well. If I'd moved to, to Senegal age 19, would I know how the council tax system works, where the bins go out, you know, even what a fuse box is, you know, how that works in that country, you know? And I think it's very easy to kind of like point at them and go, oh, that aren't they stupid? But actually, you've often got people who move you know, massive cultural differences, massive, you know, differences in their life. And, and, and they're also doing it in the public eye, being paid a lot of money and having to perform from day one. And I think if it means, if, if a player doesn't know how to use a fuse box and he just calls and says his power's gone out and I can just show him on, on FaceTime and say, look, go to the box, flip this over. Okay, great. That's a great lesson learned. If he's like, just come here now and do it. I'm not going to be like, well, you know what? This is it's really not a great time. So I, I think, you know, it's easy to kind of make jokes about these things, but actually our job is to make sure the players settle and some players are super, super self-sufficient. Some players are not. And I think we try and learn who is who and we're always happy to teach players how to do these things, but sometimes they just don't care and fine. That's, that's not my position to judge them. It's, it's my position to make sure that they're settled as possible. Mm -hmm. and play games. Yeah. I think that's, that's it, isn't it? It's about judging each individual case on its merit. And I suppose that's the, 
that's the the real skill in the job in in many ways because you're having to to determine who who wants the help who needs the help who and, and kind of working out those things i, I think I, had... i'm starting to think i need a player care manager to be honest the more you've always needed you've always need needed help. a care manager I need help, that's, yeah. a, that's a different story and a different question <laughs> sorry hugo you mentioned this fuse box what is this hugo we had we had loads of questions all sort of vaguely around the same thing harry john ed and joel What's the strangest thing you've ever had to do for someone? The maddest thing you've had to organise for a player? I don't know if this looks worse on me or worse on the player, but this is my first season at Southampton. And I'll I'll leave the name out of it, but you can probably, I don't know, work it out. So I had a player who about three days before Christmas said to me, um, I really need a pink and champagne Christmas tree. And I'm like, oh, what? What's a pink and champagne Christmas tree? Anyway, so I did lots of research. I called some people and we got this pink and champagne colored Christmas tree delivered to his house, set up, plugged it in. And it is fluorescent. I mean, you're talking like the whole ha- the whole living room is pink. And he comes and he goes, what the hell is this? And I'm like, you know how hard it is to find a pink and champagne Christmas tree the day, like a couple of days before Christmas? Turns out what he meant was, is that the decorations should be pink and champagne colored and not the tree itself. And so he's like, well, I don't want it. And I was like, well, Tough shit, you've got to have. <laughs> this is your Christmas now. <laughs> so for Christmas 2014, uh, one of my Southampton players had a pink, bright pink fluorescent tree that you could see from about three streets away. <laughs> uh, and then I made sure to next time check, did he mean the tree or the decorations? <laughs> Something like that, you know, but uh, again, we can make it a serious point, which is, you know, he had his mother-in-law visiting for the first time. He wants everything to be done properly. You know, so again, do I want him stressing on that before the Boxing Day game about where is he getting the Christmas tree or is it easy just to get someone in to come and do it? And I think, you know, every question, you know, every silly request is, it's obviously important for them. So it should be important for me as well. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to find that balance between, you know, doing a fool's errand and also being providing proper support. Yeah. All right. Switch gears a little bit here. This is a question from Abdullahi, which is what is the most tedious part of the job? Now you've referenced parking tickets twice in the last half an hour. So I'm getting the feeling that that might be a bit of a bugbear for you. No, to be fair, since I've had a department, I've delegated that straight away. (laughs) (laughs) Which is probably a nice way of answering this. Yeah, when people are like, you know what, I'd really want to some work experience in the industry. I'm like, ah, do you know how to work parking tickets? Uh, (laughs) I mean, to be fair, like I find traveling to matches quite tedious, which sounds like, I mean, especially in a pandemic when no one else has been able to go to games, people find that disrespectful or or quite surprising. But actually, like, I, I must have been to... 500 games in seven eight years including every preseason match every friendly every cup game and so I think I've missed in my actual time working for clubs maybe five games or six games and so you know it it actually becomes very tedious like sitting on buses sitting in hotels sitting on planes and I think again people would say well you're living the dream you're getting to go to all these games you know with a team and sit on the bench and all this and like to be honest like there's a buzz once or twice and obviously if you win at Stamford Bridge or Old Trafford or Anfield or whatever, obviously the buzz is unbelievable. But going to Newport County on a Tuesday night for a you know Carling Cup replay, whatever it's called now, mm. not really on my top bucket list of things I'd like to do. So you know, like I would say that 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 is tedious, but I think that's probably a little bit. It's probably a little bit like disrespectful. Um, you know, obviously there's basic admin and stuff, but you know a, a lot of it's quite repetitive, but a lot of it's changes day to day. So yeah, I I want to say they travel, but that's just because that wasn't really, my, you know, my favourite part of the job. 
I think that's probably what the players would say as well, though, isn't it? And I think we forget that a lot of the time. Like what you've just described there is the life of a footballer a lot of the time. And, and a lot of their life, you wouldn't be that envious of, to be honest. It's the side that we don't see, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a big a big discussion that we had with, with David Moyes when, I, when, I, when he came in the second time was, you know, how can we reduce the impact of these games on the players? And I think, you know, Manuel Pellegrini always made us stay in a hotel for every game, home and away, the night before. And so, like, we had... Macclesfield, I think it was in in the in one of the cups. It was like a, a Wednesday night, seven forty-five kickoff. They were coming down from Macclesfield on the morning of the game, and we were staying in a hotel five minutes away. You know, the night before, okay. and it was kind of like this is a bit silly because you know at home we have the advantage, we have the fans behind us. They were bottom of league two at that time. I think they had won like one game all season. It was like if we can't beat these guys showing up on the day. We don't deserve to be in the competition, but it wasn't that disrespectful. It was just sure. like, in reality, come on. Mm-hmm. But again, it was like, no, we were in the hotel for 36 hours. And that means the game is just a long, long drag in terms of you go in the night before. So you're arriving at six o'clock, you're having dinner, and then you've got the whole day just sat there, like doing nothing. And so, you know, again, with David, it was a lot of, of let's look at that differently. So the first, one of the first things he did when he, when he came in was cancel that for every home game. And so we only did it for you know, early kickoffs or, you know, away games. But actually, if we were in a hotel overnight, we would go in and do something in the morning, whether it was a walk, a little bit of two-touch, you know, something to get people going. And, and you know, we, we ended up putting in, like, team quizzes the night before a game, which I actually hosted, and that was that was a good laugh. But actually, like, just trying to make it more interesting. And I think yeah. that's, you know, you say, oh, well, they should be focused on the game. But, you know, I think it's quite a common, like, you know, when you lose a game, they should, you know, and then some fun video comes out, the players, it's always like, well, they should be working harder. Well, I mean, we all know if we've had a shit day at work, the last thing you want to go and do is more work. You want to switch yeah. off. Yeah. You want to sit home, you want to have a beer and you want to relax. And so, yeah. you know, just to say, well, we've lost, lost 4-0. Let's go to the training ground, do double session. Yeah, let's watch it again. Let's re-watch <laughs> yeah. that game. Sometimes like, we know we were shit today. We knew yeah. it was good enough. So, okay, we're going to we're going to go and just have a day off and actually recover and just try and mentally get back on track. So we go again. I think that's a kind of, you know, part of, of football where actually it's kind of misunderstood a little bit where actually people need a break. And like, you know, I think it's going to be a massive issue, especially, I mean, you think you're already seeing it now, but footballers are tired. Like I know everyone is tired in this pandemic, but you know, if we look at last season, we, we ended up having basically 13 months where it's normally a 10 and 11 month season. The season kind of went on till July players had two weeks off which they weren't really allowed to leave the country in and then they've gone through and no, no games have been cancelled I, mean, I think you've got rid of what two FA Cup semi-finals or something you know like very few games have been cancelled so everything is normally an 11th month season which is pretty tough anyway it's just been squeezed into like nine months no one's willing to sort of was willing to give up their competition or their bit of money everything's been squished in and players are just tired you know like mentally fatigued you know, international breaks coming up. The players are going playing sort of two games in this national break. They're playing three games. Mm. Why? Why are we playing yeah. friendlies in an international break? Just give us some time off, you know? And I think that's the problem. You got. Even the guys who have got time off, who are not playing internationally. They can't leave the country. They can't leave their houses. And I get it's the same as everyone. And there'll always be people worse off than footballers. But when you've got all the pressure on footballers and you're all, you know, we, we, we play at weird times of the day so that everyone can watch it. It's about giving a little bit back. You know, the government was able to find government exemptions for international football, but not for holidays for footballers. Yeah. So, but the safety's not changed there. There's no greater risk or less risk to 
um, public health, whether they go on holiday or whether they're going with the national teams, because you've got players playing for the national team, jumping on a Ryanair flight back with the general public, and then coming back into the Premier League bubble. Yeah. But if they want to go on holiday with their family to recover, not allowed. And I think yeah. that's when the footballers get quite frustrated, especially when you've got Matt Hancock having pops at them. And, you know, I think it really grated on people. And, you know, I, I know there will be people who've struggled more, but, you know, I, all I can talk about is my experience and, and, and my experience with the footballers. Just to jump on quickly on that hotel point from Pellegrini. So just to clarify, in a hotel the night before a game, even if it's a home game every single time, what... Yeah. Why is that happening? Is it so that you don't get an Aubameyang situation where you turn up to the stadium late because everyone then goes in the bus together? Is that the idea? Yeah, but it, you know, it, it's about being focused on the game. It's about having team dinner together, walking through, talking about the game. They're not the kids at home screaming, crying, waking them up. You know, it's the idea. It, it's not the wrong decision. I, I think you know it, there needs to be a bit of both, and I think sometimes for effects, managers go right. We'll meet at the game at four o'clock. You know, for a seven o'clock forty-five kickoff. Or they might say, actually, no, you know what, guys, we really need to be together tomorrow night. Um, we're going to go in the night before the game. I, I, I'm not, that's not a criticism of, of Manuel. It's, it's, that's the way he does things. And he really thought that the benefit was everyone being together, you know, focused on the game, willing to talk to each other. They had meetings at the hotel. Whereas, you know, other managers say, well, actually, no, I think it's more important that they have time off or time with their family. So yeah. it, I'm not saying that what we did with Manuel was wrong. We did very well, especially in the first season of the Manuel, and, and that works. So, you know, I think it's just a little bit of, of different opinions. He's not the only one that does it as well. I know that Walter Mazzari favours this um, and did it with Watford. Players, to be fair, didn't really like it. Um, but it is, <laughs> it, is, it is something that is not unique to Manuel. But uh, yeah. very quickly here from Nathan Brewer. He asks, who your favourite player to work with has been over the course of your career? Beat them all, really. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Just a pain. They just make your life hard. Yeah. I noticed. I noticed that in your in your company brochure, you've got some rather sparkling testimonials from uh, Mark Noble and Virgil Van Dyke. Yeah. So uh, I think you've got an obligation to pay them some respect here. Well, they're just nice blokes, aren't they? As well, <laughs> generally, they're both they're very nice. People I knew. I don't even like them. No. Uh... <laughs> no. I mean, I think you know, you. It's it's a different, it's different, interesting one because I think at Southampton, I actually crossed the line in terms of friend versus like and I heard this phrase the other day professional friend in terms of like I'm there to help players with everything they need and you become friendly with them but I think when you cross that line and you come too friendly with them if there's ever a situation where the club is club versus player you work for the club and so I had that a couple of times at Southampton where a player would having an argument or you know a disagreement with the club and they would go why haven't you got my back on this I thought you were my friend and I'm like well I am but my salary is paid by the club and at the end of the day, if the club sells me something, I've got, you know, if the club says, don't speak to that player, I'm like, sorry, I can't talk to you, you know, and I think that's, that's a really tough place to find. At West Ham, I was much more keen to keep that, those separation, you know, of sort of professional and personal life. I think, you know, you have players that you get on really well with and, you know, someone like, you know, Maya, Maya Yoshida, one of the loveliest people in football, really, really got on well with him and had a good laugh with him, you know, but it's, I find players who are interesting nice like I really like guys who have other interests you know outside life having talks about politics with players you know at the last general election we I started speaking to the player the English players and saying you know are you registered to vote and a lot of them were like well why would I do that and I was like well you know it, it could change quite substantially the either the amount of money you earn or your kids futures or this and then suddenly they're like, oh, okay we need to be interested in this and having you know unbiased opinion, uh, discussions about local politics and actually understanding like how does the system work 
how do I register to vote? And actually we had ended up having two of them who went down to the polling station and voted. And for me, it doesn't matter which way they voted or how they voted or whatever, but the fact that they were interested in having that discussion mm. then took it into their own hands, we registered them to vote and they went down and did it. And they were really proud of themselves as well, like really pleased. That for me shows that they aren't just boring people who talk about watches and cars, but actually if you talk to them about something interesting, they are actually normally quite interested. So, um, you know, yeah. I've got lots of players that I am friendly with. A lot of them I, you know, won't speak to or, you know, aren't friends with. But I think, you know, most of them are all right, guys. There are very few that I would dislike. And I know you're going to ask me which ones I do dislike, but... Um, <laughs> I wasn't, but I might now. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got I, a list, think, we'll listen. I think if you can imagine which players look difficult to, to deal with, they usually are. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah, I always yeah. took that. I've always taken that kind of opinion as well when it comes to, like, post-match interviews you know mix zones are just a nightmare aren't they and like players are just so miserable for people that uh, mix zones are just this part that players walk through after a game from the dressing room to the players lounge or to the coach and this is the area where journalists typically have to grab players and that's where you start to see like who was genuinely a nice guy and will just stop to chat and the ones that you just like, oh, don't even bother. Look at his face. Like yeah. he doesn't want to talk to me. The mix zone is one of the worst places on earth, yeah, for, for what it's worth. It's in, in my opinion, I really hate it. And you do, you do figure out who the nice ones are. Shout out to Gary Cahill here, who always stops, win, lose, or draw, rain or shine. Gary Cahill will always give you a minute. Fair play to you, bud. Yeah. It's because I mean, one of my jobs is to try and help the media team get players through the mix zone because you know clubs get fined if the players don't and. You know, but, you know, what I say to the players is look at the NFL where, or, or NBA, where five minutes after the game, all the press are allowed in the changing room. Yeah. So you better stop outside. Otherwise, you know, at some point they'll be coming inside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't use it as a threat. Totally. <laughs> I mean, Man United, they used to jump the barriers. Even more when you're trying to have a shower and they've got a microphone in your face. So, uh, yeah. But, I can't um, believe they can do that. Yeah. No, I, I watched the Michael Jordan documentary. I could not believe how they were all just in his face. Yeah. Imagine like, doing your job there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> no. or, or don't or don't and one from andrew murgatroyd here you go he says how does someone go about getting into your line of work uh, are there any below the prem and championship uh is his example but i mean how would you how do you start i mean you said obviously at the start about your kind of entry into it being slightly slightly more kind of random than perhaps people are now but with that growing you know the growing sense of, of this being a, a crucial part of every team's bubble and, and world are those opportunities starting to become more prominent yeah i mean um you know when i look at player liaisons or player care people how, how they've really got into their jobs we've got in the premier league we've got ex-policemen we've got ex-teachers we've got ex-players we've got you know i just did a business degree a sports business degree so like we've got people from all different backgrounds doing it so there's no like qualifications or, or barriers like my company's just released a course, which we, um, I was, I was hoping to come in here and talk about it, but actually it sold out before I got on here, which is, uh, <laughs> I guess. Um, like, congratulations. But, yeah. Well, great. Yeah. No. The follow up. Um, Tell us about the follow up. Yeah. So we're now trying to launch more dates, but yeah, you know, we, we're trying to help people get into the industry, but it's really tough. I mean, every job I've ever posted, you know, has a, over a thousand applicants, you know, and these are I'm talking about three or four days. You've got people, you know, from all over the world wanting to do this. So, it is super, super competitive. And I think, you know, in terms of other clubs outside the Premier League, you've probably got four or five championship clubs have it. And then maybe, I think, two League One clubs and one League Two club. So it's pretty rare. Um, so reaching out to your club and offering to do that sort of thing for free is always a good start. Um, but just being hot on the on the job postings, because every job in football is competitive, especially one like player care, where there's not really like 
you can't be club doctor if you're not a doctor. So player care, you can be anything. And, and the, the contact I get from, from students or even people who are much older than me who want to work in the, in the role. I mean, when I was advertising, recruiting for the roles at West Ham, my assistants, in the final four was this guy who was, I think he was like 59 years old and he, he'd been a taxi driver his whole life and then worked in communications. And I thought he was brilliant because he had something that I didn't have, which was a real life, you know, well, I have a life, life experience, but he had real life experience. He had a real knowledge of, of London, obviously. And for me, he was a really interesting candidate. He didn't get the job, but like, I don't care. Like, it's not just about trying to get these sort of whizzes from Oxford who've, who've got eight degrees because that for me is not interesting. And I think be, be the person you you know get let your personality come through within reason because there are people who have too much personality um but yeah just put yourself out there and obviously get in touch through the player care groups website if you're interested because we're going to hopefully run more courses and, and help people get in the industry as much as possible Perfect. yeah do yeah, do, do the course do exactly. hugo's course um look hugo i'm going to finish off here now it's the last last question and uh put you on the spot a little bit but uh it wouldn't be ranks fc without doing a little ranking so uh, three best and three worst things about working in player care. So best would be um, getting to be on the inside of a team, you know, and it's a nice environment because everyone's working just to win on the weekends. You don't really have like petty squabbling between staff because I'm not going to become head of medical and the head of medical is not going to become player liaison. So, you know, we work together on, on that kind of stuff. So being on part of that is really cool. Um, being able to see the world, I think it's really cool. I've, I've been to... China, Israel, Prague, you know, America, wherever. I've been to all these different places through football. And okay, I've been to the hotels, the airports and the stadiums of these places, but I've been there. And three, I think just getting to know, I guess, celebrities as people. You know, I, I still find it weird when we go outside the stadium and fans call players by their last name because I just don't think of them as like noble, noble. And I'm like, oh yeah, they're talking about Mark. But like for me, it's <laughs> Mark, my colleague, it's not... Mark Noble, Mr. West Ham, legend, all that kind of stuff. I just think of him as Mark, you know? So I guess getting to know them as people and, and kind of seeing the sort of person behind the public facade or public, uh, you know, uh, is great. Um, worst three, I think, I think work-life balance is really tough. Um, I work 42 weekends, a, or when I work for a club, I work 42 weekends a year, Christmas Day, New Year's Day. Can't take time off for weddings, parties, birthdays, holidays, you know, like I get my time off in the summer with the players and that's it. And, and that's, that can be really tough when you're missing stuff on, you know, in life. I'd say, you know, the travel again, I, I mentioned that, but don't want to harp on about how much I dislike traveling. Um, number three, I don't know. I, I, if I didn't like it, if I had three real negatives, I don't think I'd be doing it. So um, <laughs> good point. No, that's a that's a nice way to finish. We'll leave it on two. It's fine. That's it. Two is a ranking. It's not it's not a full ranking, but it's a ranking. We'll have that. Um, and that means that all that's left for us to do, Hugo, say thank you so much for joining us. Um, and I suppose for for you to tell people where they can follow you and keep an eye on what you're doing, and also you know sign up for that course. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Player Care Group is our uh, .co.uk is our website. Um, Instagram, Twitter at Player Care Group. If you want to hear from me personally, then at Hugo Schechter on Instagram and Twitter or on LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, subscribe to our newsletter. We try and send out information on jobs, stories, you know, podcasts that I do that are really good. Um, <laughs> uh, discussion questions and all that kind of stuff as well. So yeah, uh, happy to get involved and, and hear from your listeners. 
Oh, perfect. Uh, thank, thank you, Hugo, so much. It's, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and uh, and for getting your insight on something that I suppose is is a little bit behind the curtain. You know, it's nice for us to to see things that don't necessarily get all the all the conversation in in this world. It's uh it's been a really really insightful piece. So thank you so much. No, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Well, that was loads of fun, wasn't it, boys? What, what a fantastic interview. What a lovely geezer. Mm. Yeah, the march, yeah. the march uh, giving from Ranks FC has been has been generous and plentiful, hasn't it? Yeah, march uh, madness. All these stories that we're hearing that we'd never heard before. That there's in inner workings of football that are just as ridiculous as we thought they would be. Yeah. And then I can't imagine the stories they can't tell us. <laughs> That's the key, isn't it? That's the key. They're the ones that you're going to have to find for us when you have when you've yeah. taken these episodes, thought them through, worked your way into these industries, Rank Squad. Uh, then you can come back and tell us all about them and, and tell yeah. us stories. Because I hope we. I hope that there are a couple of people that have been listening that are now like, "That's my career there. That's what I'm going to do." Personally, I could not do that job. No, I know you couldn't. You have no patience. What's I have you no have? Patience, you have little but... patience with Sam and I. Never mind no. for for players. No, Dean exactly. pay someone to set up his IKEA furniture. All right, that is <laughs> that, that is the embodiment of someone yeah. who cannot possibly take care of other people's problems because he can't take care of his own. I'd yeah. love to pay someone to pay my bills. Like that's basically <laughs> what he does. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear right that's all we've got time for boys all that's left for me to do is say thank you very much to mr sam tai cheers mate thank you very much to mr dean jones cheers mate and thank you to hugo for such a wonderful interview i've been jack collins this has been ranks fc enjoy your st patrick's day celebrations wherever you are in the world slancher gang peace Fair play and fair value. It's what playing at William Hill is all about. William Hill. It's who you play with. Gamble responsibly. 